Welcome into another edition of NBA Sound System. Carlin Gay alongside my main man, Micah Adams. Micah, how's it going, my man? Carlin, man, I'm great. What I really want to do and what I'm really in the mood to do is fire up some old 2002 NBA. Oh, baby. Can't wait to do that. And that's what we're going to do on this very episode. We heard everyone's uh, reactions from last week's episode, the 98 Jazz. If you haven't listened to it yet, go back, do yourself a favor, and listen to that episode. But today, as Micah said, we're going to the 2000s and the early 2000s, to be exact, to talk about uh, maybe a forgotten team in NBA history, the 2002 Sacramento Kings, one of the funnest teams in NBA history. I, and they were and they were fun in an era before it was before anyone even knew what fun was. I mean, it, like early two thousands is like my my bread and butter. That's when I felt really truly fell in love with the NBA. And the Kings were more fun than anyone in doing it in an era in which like the rules didn't even let you have fun. Like imagine this that Kings team transported into today's league. It would be absolutely insane. Some may say that that Kings team actually set the table for what we would see from the Phoenix Suns years later and eventually what we see in the NBA now. So uh, it will be fun to go back and look at why that Kings team was so great, uh, why they were good, and also how close, how very close they came to winning an NBA championship throughout this entire episode. To do that, before we get into the Kings 2002 season, we have to take you to what brought them to that point. Uh, And it was... In the 2001 offseason, where the Sacramento Kings made a huge trade with the Toronto Raptors, they traded Corliss Williamson, who had been a, uh, a guy coming off the bench for them, uh, for Doug Christie because they needed someone to stop Kobe Bryant. In that season before, uh, the Lakers had taken taken them out of the playoffs in a five-game series, so they went out, they got themselves a wing defender in Doug Christie, and that was the guy that they said, you know what, if we're going to see the Lakers at some point, we're going to need Doug Christie to defend. And Doug Christie was a made four straight all defensive teams. Uh, and so really, like this is like Doug Christie at his absolute defensive peak, uh, without a doubt, if not the best defensive wing player in the NBA, uh, neck and neck alongside one Mr. Kobe Bryant. I mean, truly, if, if, if you are going to handpick any player in the entire league in the summer of 2001 to throw at guarding Kobe, it would be Doug Christie. Yeah, and it, the trade actually pays dividends for them. They go on to winning 55 games that very same season, third in the Western Conference. But they then see the Lakers again for the second straight season and get swept by the L.A. Lakers. Now, in that series, that now the Lakers are, of course, two-time champions at this time. In that series, uh, you know, uh, Chris Webber plays well. Pedro Siakovic plays well. Uh, Hidu Turkoglu plays well. Divas plays well. You know who did not play well in that series other than Doug Christie? Doug Christie played I can, well, as well. I can guess. I can guess where you're going here, but I'm gonna <laughs> let you just finish. I'm gonna let you finish here. Jason White Chocolate Williams oh, has man. an abysmal playoff series against the LA Lakers. He averaged 5.3 points per game on 29% shooting from the field. He had more turnovers, averaged more turnovers per game, 3.3 than assists, 2.8 in that series. Four-game sweep against the LA Lakers. Uh, White Chocolate was not good then. Yeah, when you're, when you're turning it over uh, more times than you're handing out dimes and you're shooting 29% from the field, that ain't going to cut it. Not against Kobe and Shaq. Like, you, you cannot get outplayed by Derek Fisher and expect to do anything of significance. 
Yeah. Two times in a row, they get eliminated by the LA Lakers. The LA Lakers, two times in a row, go on to win the NBA championship. So Sacramento's front office had enough. They had seen enough. They knew what they had to do to get to the next level. And it came to uh, it came to trading White Chocolate, who was a fan favorite. Three seasons so far in Sacramento. Everyone knows about him. Flashy player. He helps them kind of play this run-and-gun style of basketball that we now see uh, in, in the season that we're about to talk about. And he was really like the captain of them getting up and down the floor. A huge favorite in Sacramento, and everyone is upset because he gets traded to Vancouver for Mike Bibby. Mike Bibby comes back in return to Sacramento. Fourth quarter assassin, Mike Bibby. And look, this is the this is the exact type of move that a team who's being honest with itself and saying, "Can we really do anything serious?" Look, I love white chocolate. White chocolate is one of my uh, one of my favorite players from growing up. I, I think he's. Uh, an immensely underrated entertainer. Maybe not underrated. I think everyone knows uh, how amazing the entertainer he was. But if you're seriously going to win, right? Like, you cannot look at Jason Williams at that time and take yourself seriously as a team that's that's actually going to, in nut-crunching time, uh, stay composed, make right decisions. And it pains me to say it because I love Jason Williams, but... You know they're they're gonna go out and get Mike Bibby, who goes on to to kind of become this fourth quarter legend over the next couple of years. Of course, won a national championship in mm. college uh, at, at Arizona, so he's got some major major big game chops. It's the exact type of type of move that you make to set yourself up to to win it all. Alongside in that uh, white chocolate trade was Nick Anderson. Yes, Nick Anderson, Mr. 0 for 4 from the free throw line, reminding me of my Buffalo Bills going 0 for 4 in the worst moments possible. And Don't do that uh, to yourself, man. Don't come on. <laughs> go, coming back from, uh, from Vancouver uh, alongside Mike Bibby is Brent Price. Yes, Brent Price, brother of Mark Price, four-time All-Star and uh, Cleveland Cavalier uh, legend. What's your favorite Brent Price uh, memory? You're going to ask me for a favorite Brent Price memory? How, how deep of a cut are we going? We haven't even talked about Peja Stoyakovich yet. You're asking me for a Brent Price story? Uh, yeah, Come on, I don't, have, I don't have time for that. That's my favorite Brent Price memory, too. Uh, Chris Webber has his season of a lifetime in 2001, averages 27 and 11, finishes fourth in MVP voting. I believe that's the highest he's ever finished in a field that includes Tim Duncan, Shaquille O'Neal, and Alan Iverson, who obviously wins the award that season. Um, he's on, he's, he's kind of now on the map as one of the best players in the NBA at this time. He's in his third year in Sacramento after kind of crying about being there in the first place because Sacramento had been known as losers. He's helped turn them around a little bit. Playoffs two times in a row. He's becoming he's an all-star once again. Chris Weber slowly starting to become one of the faces in the NBA. And that summer signs a huge contract, a seven-year, $127 million contract to be the man, which is, you know, peanuts now. But at the time was big money uh for a big man who was, you know, hadn't won anything yet. And I, I think people sometimes uh casually forget just how amazing prime Chris Webber really was. I mean, to make first team all NBA in a league that has Shaq and Tim Duncan and, and Kevin Garnett and T-Max winning scoring titles, Carl Malone is, is old, but still an all NBA player. Dirk Nowitzki's now reached become an all-star 
David Robinson is still an All-NBA player at that point. Rasheed Wallace is up and coming. I mean, it is an absolute murderer's row of bigs, especially in the Western Conference, but really everywhere. That's how good C-Web was. Had, had a had a string in the, in the, in that uh, in, in the winter of 01 there, where he he goes for 50 and 25, has a run of other 40 and 10 games. Chris Webber was at his apex just. He's everything you could have possibly wanted from a skilled power forward. Yeah, he he, he really and truly was. Uh, he was one of the faces of the league. At that time, he was kind of getting his own shoe deal, which doesn't come easy and often. He had those data shoes, if you remember, with the little spinners on the side, uh, that uh, little spinning uh, rims on the side. That was cool for maybe the early 2000s, would look awful now. Uh, but he was on face, uh, you know, his face was on video games. He was on NBA Jam uh, as a as a cover athlete in that early 2000s time. So Chris Webber is one of these stars in the NBA. So Sacramento has now built this team over the last couple of years to head into the 2001-2002 season, which we're about to talk about, uh, to be not just a playoff team, but to be a title contender. They have Chris Webber. They have Mike Bibby now, uh, a, a, a sure-handed point guard. Vladi Defots has been there for years. He's, he's probably the best big at the time in terms of guarding Shaquille O'Neal. They have the best perimeter defender that they could possibly get in Doug Christie to guard Kobe Bryant. And then they have a stacked unit that uh, is going to set them up for what would be a great season. They end up winning 61 games, uh, finishing 61 and 21 best record uh, in the entire league. And it really set the table for what we would see uh, them going on a playoff run. And oh, by the way, Chris Webber wasn't even, uh, he barely played he 54 games that year. He was injured. Yeah, I mean, I, and really, you look at that, their best player that season, I think when you when you really take into consideration all the time that Chris Webber missed, it's probably Peja who makes the first of his three All-Star teams. The fact that the, that the Kings were still able to go 61-21 and 21, uh, just speaks volumes to that incredible depth that you just talked about. And this is, this is a, a time in a league in which really whoever wins the West is going to win the NBA title. The Lakers and Spurs both won 58 games. The Mavericks won 57. And the only team in the East to even win more than 50 are the New Jersey Nets, who went 52-30 and 30 and, of course, got swept uh, got swept in the NBA Finals by the Lakers. And one of the things that I think was really fascinating about, uh, about this Kings team, so they have the best record, they have the, bet, the best net rating, just slightly better than the Lakers, and, and, and actually one that was better than the Lakers from the previous year, uh, as well, so they stacked up great, not only with the Lakers from that season, but the one from the year before. And look, we talked about how fun, how fun of a team this was, Carlin. They ranked first in the NBA in pace that wow. season, Fa- fastest team up and down the floor. Here's here's how different the league was then uh, versus how it is now. That same pace. From the 2001-02 season that was first in the NBA would rank dead last today. <laughs> That's how much of a different league it is. I don't think people really fully understand when we talk about how the NBA has changed over the last 20 years. Like it really is a completely different sport. Yeah, that that, that stood out to me as well because they and, and and not only that, but points per game as well. I mean, you're looking at a team. I think maybe three or four teams that were averaging more than 100 points per game at the time. The rest of the league struggling to. 
get to 95 points per game on average. Like they, the league is completely different uh, at that time, and Sacramento really and truly were pioneers at, in terms of getting up and down the floor. Uh, at, at, as you said, at at the time a breakneck pace, but now there's probably high school teams playing as fast as that. Uh, you know, at the JV level, let alone uh, varsity. So. Uh, yeah, that's the Sacramento Kings, NASCAR pace at the time in 2000. They have the best record in the NBA and largely without Chris Webber in the lineup. And you mentioned the season that Pedro Stojakovic has, but across the board, this team is super deep. They have seven guys, uh, sorry, six guys average at least double digit scoring in the regular season. Uh, that does not include, or that sorry, seven guys. That includes Bobby Jackson, who also is coming off a bench, six man extraordinaire. Hidu Turkoglu was who was coming off the bench a lot uh, in the regular season as well. He's up beyond uh, ten points per game. You talk about the roster as a whole. We talked about you know building it to try and beat the Lakers, but they also had guys that could get it done on the wing. Uh, and at that time, that wasn't normal for for NBA teams. Like we had seen it with Jordan and Pippen, but that kind of went away when they broke apart. And it was you know if you don't have a Shaq, if you don't have a Tim Duncan, if you don't have a Garnett. Or Chris Webber, you're not winning at a high level. The Kings were unique because they had the ability to play both inside and outside, and that matched what the Lakers were able to do. And, and the, the, wing, the wings are huge, right? Like Page is a legit 6'8. Hito Turkaloosa was 6'9, 6'10. Doug Christie's got decent size. Webber, obviously. And I think, you know, I, I for one, I, I think I took for granted even how good. Vladi Divac still was. He was an all-star just one year prior. Uh, the only time he ever made an all-star team was uh, was the 2000-2001 season. And and I think, you know, we, you mentioned Bobby Jackson. He's a name that I think sometimes gets a little bit lost in the weeds. So he's entering his prime. Bobby Jackson was a player, man. Bobby Jackson is somebody that could uh, kind of stare down the pipes at anyone in the fourth quarter of a game. Uh, is sort of along the lines of what, like, you might expect today from like a or, or the last couple of years from like a Jamal Crawford type I mean maybe not as as prolific as prolific as, as Jamal but Bobby Jackson was, a, was certainly a big game player in that mold the type of guy that y- you would feel comfortable a hundred times out of a hundred going up against uh Derek Fisher and Rick Fox and Robert Ory and matching wits with those kind of guys yeah, and he was actually closing a lot of the games uh, when White Chocolate was on the team in those playoff series that they would eventually lose to because they couldn't trust Jason Williams down the stretch. So they would go to Bobby Jackson a lot, and Bobby Jackson played. He was he was kind of like a sixth starter uh, per se on that team. And then the emergence of Turkaloo was great. They had seven guys that they could go to and trust, but then they had the vets. Uh, if you want to get two thousand early two thousands basketball, listen to some of these names: Scott Pollard, <laughs> Lawrence Funderburg. Uh, a rookie, Gerald Wallace, only 19 years of age. Mateen Cleaves could come in and give you some minutes as well. So they had guys that they could really go to uh, off their bench. And in the case of Scott Pollard, six extra fouls for Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, in the case of some of the best, some of the best hair and f- hair and facial hair in the entire <laughs> league, by the way, there yeah. for about 10 years. Scott Pollard is is he's on the Mount Rushmore of early 2000s hair 
in the yes, NBA. Yes, he, he certainly is. It was a, it was a character. It was a character group. A lot of uh, a lot of characters on that team. They had a unique entrance at Arco Arena. They were you know they were tough, and they were heading into the playoffs this time around, thinking that if they do see the Lakers again, they had all the momentum in the world to beat them because not only did they have home court advantage for the first time, or would have home court advantage for the first time if they saw them in the playoffs, but they had home court advantage throughout the playoffs and everything that we said. We talked about all the pieces in place to try and beat this team. So the playoffs start. They roll through the Utah Jazz in four games. At that time, it was best of five, so they beat them 3-1. They roll to roll through uh, the Dallas Mavericks in five games in the best of seven, beating them 4-1. But in that final game of the series, they lose a huge piece to the puzzle, and that's Peja Siakovic, who goes down with an injury, and we would not see him to the middle of the Lakers series. Yeah, so he... Uh... He, he rolls an ankle really bad. There's a quote from Rick Adelman uh, heading into the Western Conference Finals. Quote, right now, I think he's a long way from playing. I mean, he was on crutches, uh, really not, not running, not working out, not practicing. Uh, it'll say a sprained right ankle, but it was significantly worse than that. He finally comes back in Game 5, promptly goes 0 for 3 and scores just 2 points. Uh, he does play in six and seven off the bench, but is a complete shell of himself. Averages fewer than seven points a game, goes just one of 10 from beyond the three-point line. And this is a guy that absolutely torched the Lakers twice during the regular season. He had two, uh, on two different occasions, scored 25, basically matching Kobe or coming very close to matching Kobe. And and so really, I think sometimes when when you take a look at what we're going to talk about here with this Lakers series, I think it's impossible to look at that through the prism of they basically played them without their second best player and they were still right there. They 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 arguably still should have won that series without Peja even being in the lineup. On the other side of things for the Lakers, they roll through uh, their first two uh, series in in the uh, in the playoffs, sweep the Portland Trail Blazers, get past the tough San Antonio Spurs team uh, at five in five games, and Shaquille O'Neal plays the first two series with a toe injury, two ankles hurt, uh, a, 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 a index finger that needed stitches, and that's where this is the playoffs where we really and truly see Kobe Bryant sort of come alive and take over in moments that that we would later find out that he is as good as uh, Shaq is in in in, in time Times of need. I mean, we had seen that in in spurts in the first two playoff championship runs, but it was still Shaq's team. This is where Kobe, I think, starts to become Kobe, uh, the legend that that ends up being built and, and and one of the top twelve players of all time. I I couldn't agree more. I think you know we people point to sort of that two thousand series against against the Pacers where he saves them after Shaq fouls out, and you know Kobe comes back the next year and and almost wins a scoring title. Uh, but I, but I agree with you. I think it's this 2001-2002 season, and really in the playoffs in particular, where Kobe really puts himself on equal footing with Shaq, or or as as close as as one could get uh, to equal footing with Prime Shaq. If you want to see a great playoff series from yesteryear, this is it. All of the momentum on 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 the Sacramento Kings side. They finally have a team that they think that's built to beat the Lakers. Yes, they're playing without Peja Stojakovic, but it's okay because Hidu Turkoglu's there. He's going to step in and be able to take over a lot of the minutes that he has. Shaq's hurt, so now you don't have to worry too much about how you neutralize him. Uh, Kobe's kind of uh, a one-man show at this point, and you have the best defender in the league that could possibly guard him in terms of Doug Christie, and he no longer have... 
boneheaded mistakes from white chocolate sorry white chocolate i love you but boneheaded mistakes from white chocolate you have the sure hand of mike bibby at point guard to match that of Derek fisher everything's in place and oh by the way they have home court advantage in a tough arena uh everything's in place for the sacramento kings it was the series that everybody wanted to see i think mike breen uh, ahead of game one says something like the dream series best team in the league against a two-time defending champions this is sacramento they were waiting for it and the first four games go exactly how you expect it to go back and forth and by the end of them we're tied up at two heading into game five yeah, but I, I, I think we, we, do, we do the Kings a little bit. We, we can't let them off the hook here because I think that, look, game four is the one that everyone remembers for the shot that big, you know, Robert Ory hits the three at the buzzer to, to seal the 199 win. But really, Sacramento lets them off the hook big time in that game. You know, we talked, you know, when we talked last week about how the Utah Jazz kind of gift wrapped a couple games to the Bulls there in 98, the Sacramento Kings gift wrapped this one to the Lakers. <laughs> They're up 40 to 20 after the first quarter. They scored 34 points in the entire second half. 34. Wow. They shot 15 wow. of 36 from the field. You you cannot expect to beat to beat this Lakers team scoring 34 points in a half in a game in which you lead by 20. I mean, that's that that's ridiculous. I, it, it's funny because, so they're doing all this without Peja, who doesn't even play uh, till game five. The writing is, is eerily, it's kind of uh, on the wall a little bit. So with, with no Peja, Hedo Turkaloo's in the starting lineups, right? So they're going Bibby, Doug Christie, Hedo, Chris Webber, and Vladdy Divax. That lineup went eight and two uh, in the regular season. One of the only two losses came at home against the Lakers in a game they lost by only one point. So a little bit of foreshadowing as to what exactly would transpire then now in game four. And, and another another note here. So Robert Ory gets the ball after Kobe misses. There's a Shaq uh, tip that he misses. Vladi Divac, uh basically bats the ball away from, uh, from around the rim, which is what you're supposed to do. That's what you're taught. Robert Ory catches it, sinks it, drains it. That was the 32nd and final second chance points for the Lakers in that Jeez. game. Sacramento gets outscored 32 to 12 on second chance points. And by the way, that is the most second chance points they gave up in any single game that entire season. 98 games, regular season and playoffs. Those 32 second chance points they gift wrapped to the Lakers, the most they gave up in any of them. So, yeah, big shot Bob hits that big shot, no doubt about it. Sacramento should have been up 3 1 and doing it without Peja. They gave up, I believe, in that in game four, a 27 point lead at one point uh, before losing in heartbreaking fashion uh, to, to big shot Bob's big shot. Uh, they go to game five, tied it to back at home. And this is where Sacramento, who had lost to this team two years in a row, uh, this team has a championship experience in, in terms of the Lakers. Everything kind of rolling in momentum. They just stole one back at home. Uh, they're feeling it. Shaq's getting healthy. Still, we don't know if Turgaloo's, or sorry, uh, Peja Stojakovic is going to play. They go back home in Sacramento, game five, and Phil Jackson makes the comment ahead of game five, calling Sacramento a cow town. An old cow town. And that <laughs> is where the birth of the cowbell comes uh, in Sacramento. And for the rest of the series, all the home games at Arco Arena 
sound like you are in, uh, I, I don't know, uh, Mississippi State's college football field. I know they do a lot of cowbells, cowbells there. That is uh, an iconic moment in Sacramento sports history when Phil Jackson goes out and calls him an old cowtown. Uh, yeah, I, I, the, the complete lack of respect there from Phil, I, I, you know what? I think he got a little bit lucky because this series, this series goes a little bit differently. Oh man. He's not living that one down for a long, long, long time. <laughs> he, it wasn't actually the most disrespectful comment of the uh, entire playoffs. Uh, the, the Lakers Shaq, if you remember clearly Shaq said, uh, we're not worried about the Sacramento Queens before even game one of the playoffs started. So, uh, we're now game tied, tied at two, game five. And again, it comes down to the final shot. This time, though, in favor of the Sacramento Kings, Mike Bibby knocks down a big shot, gives him a two-point lead. Kobe can't answer at the other end. And Sacramento is up 3-2 in the series, heading back to L.A. And they're one game away. Mike Bibby's one game away. Chris Webber's one game away. Vladi Divas is one game away of getting back to the finals. So Yakovic is finally playing and healthy, who, by the way, actually checks in at the end of the game to guard on a on a uh, you know broken down ankle uh, to try and stop that final possession. So all the momentum in the world, 61 wins. It's right there for them. They just got to get one W. It's that easy, right? If only they weren't playing two on one there in the fourth quarter. <laughs> or so six had, on five or eight on five, whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah, they head back to uh, game six. They lose game six. And then it sets up an epic game seven. Again, if you're going to watch one game uh, over this quarantine that we're all in, go back and watch this game seven. And by the way, we do have to mention, I, 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 I we can't just skip this over. You we can't do have to skip mention, the free throws, right? Yeah, we do have to mention Sacramento's game six loss comes on a, a, a cloud of innuendo and also, uh, you know, disappointment. Uh, Tim Donahue has later came out in, uh, actually, I think he filed it in court as well in, in late 2000s, uh, that this game was fixed by the league and the officials that were participating in that game six. There were 27, is that right? 27 free throws for the Lakers in the fourth quarter alone. Yeah, they go 21 of the, so the, the game is tied entering the fourth quarter. The Lakers proceed to go 21 of 27 from the foul line. Uh, only make five shots. The Kings are whistled for 16 fouls uh, in the fourth quarter alone. Uh, it, so, yeah, I, I mean, that the numbers, look, I'm not going to get into all that speculation, but those are just those are what the numbers say. So uh, say say it what you will. There's a really controversial foul where Mike Bibby gets called after getting elbowed. He's bleeding uh, from the, from the face. So there's there's some shadiness going on in the fourth quarter of Game Six. But that said. They're right there. The, the, the game is tied entering the fourth quarter. It's not like uh, they were they were completely out of it. Sacramento had their chances to take care of business, just couldn't get the job done. Uh, the late, great David Stern came out after uh, Tim Donahue made those claims and denied it from the NDA standpoint. Uh, so, you know, up to you to decide what actually happened. Uh, we won't get into that here. But bottom line is it's tied at three. And we're heading to a game seven. You still have to feel good about yourself if you're Sacramento. You're going back home. It's a game seven. You're healthy now at this point, as healthy as you can be at this point in the playoffs. Shaq's sort of breaking down. Uh, and here we go. You know, game seven, it's all there for you. You just want one game to play for at the end of the year to make it to the finals. This is it. Game seven in Arco Arena goes back and forth. Both teams battling it out. It actually needs an overtime to get a result 
What a game it is. Uh, obviously, you know by now the LA Lakers go on to win that game and win the NBA championship, but it was oh so close. Comes down to six points being the difference. All of those six obviously coming in overtime. Uh, what really stood out of that game seven uh, for, for the Sacramento Kings? Oh, man. Uh, look, I, Mike Bibby comes up big again late. Uh, hit some clutch free throws. He makes a couple buckets in overtime. And I, I, I really, it's hard because I think sometimes people want to pin it on maybe Chris Webber's uh, inability to come up big. Chris Webber, like, he had a really good game. Like, it, it, 20 points, 11 dimes, 8 boards. I know he was a 9 of 21 from the foul line. He really didn't have a bad game that entire series. And you look at it across the board, like the Sacramento Kings, they shot 2 of 20 from the three-point line, okay? But that said, this is not a team like, you know, we talked about how they were the, they were a run-and-gun, fastest up-and-down team in the league. They were actually below average in three-point shooting that whole season. So it's not like this was like a like a Houston Rockets in 2018 against the Warriors situation right. where a team that normally cans all its trees just all of a sudden couldn't buy a bucket. I mean, 2 of 20 is, is pretty abysmal, uh, in a game seven, but I, I don't know. I just I, I I just get get the feeling that not I, they were there. They could have they could have closed the closed the deal. Obviously, it goes to overtime. Uh, Kobe misses a shot at the end of the fourth quarter. It's not like they didn't have a chance, but I don't necessarily look at it as like the Kings crapped the bed, so to speak. W- yeah. Would you agree with that or not? Or would you would you lay it on thick? Would you say Sacramento had it? They blew it. I think history looks back on this game and people uh, obviously look at Chris Webber first and foremost. As you said, in the last two games, I think he was like an assist shy of averaging a triple-double in the last, in game six and seven. And people always put the blame on him saying that he wasn't able to come up big. When you look at the overtime numbers, they aren't kind to Chris Webber. He's one of five from the field. And you go back and look at the shots. He was getting wide open looks because Shaquille O'Neal wanted nothing to do with with guarding him uh, far outside of the paint. So he was able, there were, there were shots that he should have made. Uh, and then Doug Christie really embarrassed himself from the field, two for 11 in that game. He, he missed a critical wide open three late in overtime when the game was a two point game at that point. And, and, that, and you could just feel the arena uh, kind of, you, you could hear it. The, the arena kind of just, the energy just, just leaving and, and, and saying, oh no, here we go again. I wonder if Sacramento was in LA without that responsibility of having all the uh you know the home court advantage the 60 wins and all that other stuff i wonder if they were in la and la had the pressure to kind of upkeep and hold on to being the two-time champions defending champions at home to try and hold off this little brother that's coming at you uh i wonder if the the result might have been different if sacramento was able to play a little bit freely uh in that situation we'll 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 never truly know but i think history does look back on it and say and i i I'm on your side is that Weber played better than the numbers will show, but I think history looks back at it and says they, they absolutely choked that opportunity. The, the other thing that I, that I think, you know, when you look at it closer about how that, so that the fourth quarter in overtime, Chris Weber goes, he goes one for four uh, in the fourth quarter, one of five in OT. Kobe's also completely non-existent. Mm-hmm. So he does not make a shot. In the fourth quarter, overtime goes all for two in the fourth quarter. Uh, doesn't even, doesn't even attempt a shot. Uh, in overtime as well, so I, I mean, you have kind of Kobe Bryant there as well, and, and I, you know, he's already obviously a two-time champ. It's you know, he's he's kind of secured his place. It's not like Kobe had anything major writing 
on that legacy wise, but I think it is interesting looking back on it and you say like, man, like the Lakers really did try opening the door. At least they didn't slam the door shut on them. You know, it's not like, it's not like the Lakers came in here, bossed them around in a game seven, like we've seen so many other times uh, throughout history where teams blow it earlier in the series and then push comes to shove. The better team proves its mettle uh, in a game seven. That was certainly not the case. We're going to get into Chris Webber and his lasting legacy in a little bit. I don't think that this series in particular, though, should be the black mark that I think a lot of people think that it is. We do have to mention before we get on to what the, the, you know to take away from the season from the Sacramento Kings. Again, free throw line mattered in overtime. The Lakers went to the free throw line eight times, hit all eight free throws. That includes Shaq two, two for the line. He always says that he makes them when it counts. The Sacramento Kings did not shoot a single free throw. Now, some of that is... Uh, they just didn't attack the rim. They were getting open shots, so they were taking them. Some of that could be maybe controversial calls that just didn't weren't able to get that whistle. That's up to for a debate. You could go back and watch it yourself. It's all there for you. You just Google it and you'll find it. Uh, but that is sort of the story of the Sacramento Kings. You could look at it a couple of ways. One, uh, they choked away an opportunity in Game Four. They really should have won the series. Two, they were the better team and just couldn't get over the hump. Three. Uh, the, the, the game was fixed and they had no chance of winning it uh, or, or four Chris Weber just couldn't rise to the occasion uh, when you know when, when it was when he was called upon and uh, that was kind of the story after that one because I think that's the closest he came it not I don't think that is the closest he came to making the finals and ultimately yeah. a ring well and you know one of the 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 most endearing lasting image of this series is always going to be Robert Ory's shot in game four, right? It's, it's one of the probably the, the 20 most iconic shots, uh, maybe 15 most iconic shots in, in NBA playoff history. I, I think that the poetry of that being a three pointer against a Kings team that goes two for 20 in game seven is important. I also, you know, one other note that I think is worth throwing out. So Robert Ory hits that shot in game four over the final four games of this series. Sacramento shot a combined zero of 14 from three in the fourth quarter in overtime. Not one, (laughs) not one time. Uh, And that includes a shot in game seven uh, with 12 seconds left in regulation that Peja Stojakovic misses a three. He makes that three. They win the game. They win, they win the series. They become NBA champions. So I think that there is some poetry there. Uh, when it comes to the lack of three-point shooting, and especially then when you throw in the injury uh, to Peja, who's obviously their best shooter, it kind of—it's just—it's it, just, it, it's just a, the, the symbolism there is not lost on me. Looking back on it and taking kind of a closer look at kind of the plays that mattered most, the shots that did go in, the shots that didn't go in, uh, and then really look at it within the context of the series as a whole. Uh, yeah, going back and looking at some of these this stuff, and I, I knew they were close, but I didn't realize how close they truly were. Like they should have won a championship. It felt like in that era, but that's why we have dynasties, and that's why we have the LA Lakers. Sometimes luck just goes into it. Uh, the Lakers obviously go on to winning the NBA championship that year. They defeated the New Jersey Nets, swept them in the finals, 4-0. Uh, a Nets team, by the way, who finished first in the Eastern Conference on the other side, 50-plus wins for them. Um, tie a bow on this Sacramento Kings team. 2002 Sacramento Kings team, arguably probably the best roster they ever had. Uh, you know, Rick Adelman, his best season easily in Sacramento. He was right there. Three straight years, they get eliminated by the LA Lakers. It really becomes a... 
I don't want to call it a rivalry because the Lakers dominated every time it mattered uh, and Sacramento were never able to beat them when it mattered. But, uh, you know, there were fights. The, the very next season, uh, that's when the, the famous Doug Christie uppercut on Rick Fox happens in the preseason game. And then they eventually fight in the tunnel where this, the Kings bench kind of clears. Shaq runs around the tunnel and tries to break things up. He's not even playing in the game because he's hurt. Uh Preseason fights, this is what happens when the NBA rivalries between two teams that see each other in the playoffs so often happens. Um, But what is your lasting memory of a Sacramento King team that were just there but just not good enough? Yeah, I, I to me it's it boils down to two two big ones. For me, I will I will remember the Kings as probably I think for my for my money one of the five best teams. Uh, since 2000, not to win an NBA title. I put them right alongside the 2000 Blazers. Uh, pick a Suns team, either the 05 or 06 teams with Steve Nash and Amari and Sean Marion. Uh, I think that the 2010-11 the Bulls uh, were a really, really good team with Derrick Rose. Uh, and then the most recent uh, group of Rockets teams. So I think big picture-wise, I look at the Kings as probably one of the the handful of teams over the last two decades that couldn't get it done, that probably should have got it done. I I sincerely do think that if Peja Stojakovic doesn't sprain his ankle uh, against the Dallas Mavericks, that they're, they're going to probably win that series. And they almost won it anyway, as we just talked about. Um, so I think that's kind of where I fall. And then, look, we we have to have a conversation about Chris Webber because I I just said that I don't think that this series is an indictment on Webber. I really don't. Like, I, I think he was, uh, he really did not have a bad game uh, for the series. He's 24, 11, and 6, shoots 51%. But the whole, like, he's not bad, but he also wasn't great. So if you look at Chris Webber's, Every single, you sort his games, his entire career, best to worst according to game score. Zero of his top 50, zero are coming a playoff game. Mm. Of his top 100, just three come in playoff games. So it's kind of like James Harden in the sense, uh, or Carl Malone, where you look at kind of where they shine the brightest, and it's just not in the brightest spots. Like, the, the fourth quarter in overtime when when Chris Webber in game seven of that series could have could have won it could have could have snatched and grabbed that title just couldn't get it done I think it's it's more just emblematic of of the entire Chris Webber experience than it necessarily is like taking a sledgehammer to his resume so to speak I, I think about the the, the fact I, I agree with you in terms of one of the five best teams to not have won it in most recent memory. I think about the legacy for so many guys that were on that team. Chris Webber, uh, Mike Bibby, Peja Stojakovic, Vladi Divac, even Rick Adelman, who, who had went to two finals before with the Portland Trailblazers and then very close with the Sacramento Kings. All those men, I mean, how different could their legacy have been if they were able to get over the hump one time against the Lakers and win a ring? We'd be talking I mean, about them completely differently. We would be. I mean, cr- and Rick Adelman, he's like he's like Andy Reid in the NFL, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty much. He, he, I mean, he he's gotten close. He got close and ran into Michael. Fair enough. And then this time, now he runs into Kobe and Shaq, and it's just just bad luck for him. Really bad luck for him. Uh, but the one guy off of those early Sacramento teams, and the one name that we talked about uh, that was able to actually win a ring, White Chocolate. 
How about that? <laughs> How about that? White that chocolate goes. All things come full circle, right? Yeah, white chocolate goes to Miami, wins a ring in, in, in 06 with uh, with that first Heat team that was able to win off of uh, D Wade's I, back. So I got I got I got two more things for you on C Web that I want to that I want to run by you. Go for it. Okay, so. And and this this might be disrespect. The the second one is definitely going to be disrespectful to Chris Webber. So let's start with the the kind of the less respectful one. So the Sacramento teams, in the sense that they just couldn't get past the Lakers, they won a whole ton of regular season games. Had were were deep. Uh, had a couple of all stars. I I kind of view them a little bit like the the pre Kawhi Leonard Toronto Raptors. And I wonder, like, I, I, like, I don't know if, like, Chris, Web- like, I think calling Chris Weber like the Demar Derozan of his era is a little disrespectful to Chris Weber because I think he's just on a different level than Derozan. But I do think it's interesting, like, if, like, if Sacramento would have gone back in time and and been like, you know what, like, we have the opportunity to trade Chris Weber to go get Kevin Garnett or you know, Tim Duncan or Dirk or whoever, like. I don't know. Do you do you find that valid, or do you, or is that, or is that kind of a straw man argument? I, I like I like Chris Webber. I, I think, and we tried to set that scene kind of at the beginning. How Chris Webber was at the time one of you know, I, if you had a, a GM poll of uh, you know rank the guys that you would start a franchise around, I, I don't think Chris Webber would fall beyond seventh. Like he was, he was that type of guy. He was, uh, and and it was a, a different style than some of the other you know bigs at the time. Like Shaq was powerful. Tim Duncan was you know so fundamentally sound. Chris Webber was a guy that was okay getting you ten assists randomly in a game at the power forward position, which was very rare. And that's what made that Sacramento offense so unique. Like Bibby didn't average a ton of assists. I think he averaged five that season. Chris Webber was very close to that as well. He was, uh, you know, at the top of the key passing big man. Like we saw kind of last year with, you know, how the Raptors kind of changed their offense to win the championship with Marcus Gasol in that role. Uh, you know, Paul Gasol did that as well with the Lakers and so many other big men. Chris Webber uh, was, was really a guy that, wasn't just a scorer, was a good playmaker. And, uh, you know, when his attitude was right, I think that's the biggest thing. He, he would be one of the best players in the league. Okay. So you're going to, you're going to toss out the DeRozan thing and that's fine. I just wanted to, I just wanted to workshop that by you. I think DeRozan, DeRozan was never able to kind of get as close to the, and he was never a face of the league. Like he, like Weber was on video game covers and stuff like that. And, And MVP voting like DeRozan wasn't, he wasn't close to that. Okay, that's fair. All right, I got I got one more thing on Chris Webber, and I think that this is something that I think ties into. Wait, I give, uh, the, I'll give you one with Chris. Go Webber, ahead. Lamarcus Aldridge. That's not bad. You know, yeah, he, he was he was he was nice for a, a good time. Lamarcus Aldridge, I, I think, is a, a guy that will go down as just completely historically underrated. A take it to the bank nineteen and eleven guy for basically forever. Like if he had the Chris Webber college pedigree, I think we talk about Lamar- Lamarcus Aldridge a little bit different. So sp- speaking of college, so do get, right going back to to calling timeout uh, in the title game against Carolina, he, Chris Webber just has this reputation uh, for just not coming up in the big moments. Right, that's just that's kind of part of his enduring legacy. In addition to just he could, he kind of just never put it all all together, even though he had the skills to really. Uh, to truly be a top top shelf top shelf Hall of Fame type guy, obviously now still sitting on the outside of the Hall of Fame trying to get in. So a couple of years ago, this is in May of 2018, 
I I was writing something for ESPN specifically as it looked to Rajan Rondo, mm-hmm. and I was trying to find uh, basically looking at like how real of a thing is playoff Rondo. Okay, so at the time, I looked at every single player in the post-Jordan era that played at least 1,500 playoff minutes, okay? There were 157 of them. Okay. Okay? If you take points, rebounds, assists, steals, blocks, and turnovers, okay? Just straight per-game averages. 153 of those got better in at least one of the categories. Rondo got better in all six of them, which is why he's (laughs) playoff Rondo. There are only four players, however, who got worse Uh from the regular season to the playoffs in all six categories. Uh Uh-oh. Would you care to guess who one of the four names on that (laughs) list might be? Uh Uh-oh. Come on. Don't say it's Chris Webber. It is Chris Webber. Oh, no. It is Chris Webber in the the, uh, company of Delonte West, David Wesley, and Hito Turkoglu, who... uh, obviously was on that Kings team as well. So of those of those four, C-Web obviously kind of the only all-star caliber player. So it's really not a stretch to, to say that in the post-Jordan era of every single all-star caliber player, Chris Webber is the one who more than anyone else failed to rise to the occasion. Boy, that's things. And that, uh, that that's the reason why I guess he's sitting on the outside looking in in terms of... Uh making the yeah. uh, the Hall of Fame. Do you think he should get in? I I think he should get in cuz you have to take into account what he's what he did in college. Uh I th- I think he should get into the Hall of Fame. I agree. I think he should be there. I, I think it's a little bit especially because like the the Basketball Hall of Fame has a weird bar, right? Like Mitch Richmond is in the Hall of Fame. Right. If Mitch Richmond is in the Hall of Fame, can we please get Chris Webber in the Hall of Fame? Yeah, like what, what, what are we for? doing? Yeah. Right? What, 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 I, the, the if if you if you are at your peak and like as we talked about, he's making a first team All NBA, and and seasons in which there's there's maybe never like the 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 power forward and center spot in the early two thousands is maybe as loaded as it's ever been in the entire history of the league. And Chris Webber is right there with Shaq and Tim Duncan, yeah. like at his best. C Web was just a an absolute monster. I I also think you know. If they win the title in 2002, he's probably in the Hall of Fame right now, right? Oh, 100%. 100%. And, and this is actually the 2002 season is his peak, in my opinion, in terms of, uh, you know, the year before, he, he he's, like I said, top five MVP voting, gets the big contract, and then it's, his body starts to fall apart on him. Yeah, and he's, he's never the same. So uh, that was as close as he'd ever get. That was his peak, and that was as close as the Sacramento Kings ever got. And uh, they now are just hoping to get back into the postseason. Dude. Do you think now, obviously, Dirk had a longer season. He he ended up climbing way higher on the scoring scoring list. He, he won an MVP. Uh, do you think that there's there's a little bit of like a... Um, is he basically Dirk Nowitzki without a title? He, yeah, he is. Or not quite. He's in that, he's in he's that not, class. He's okay. in that class. Because Dirk... Well, uh, Dirk won an MVP, and and he was able to get his team. You know, the, obviously the embarrassment of losing to the to the We Believe Warriors will uh, kind of haunted him for a bit. But I don't think C Web ever, as you said, he was never able to kind of rise to the occasion to 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 get the MVP. Not like fourth in MVP voting is a nice stat, and like I said, that field was stacked. But he was never better than Tim Duncan. You know, he was uh, Tim Duncan ends up winning the MVP. Yeah. 
two years in a row, uh, including this season that we're talking about now. So, uh, and and then Garnett shows up, and and he's one of the best players in the league. So he was always kind of the third best big, but in that time, he was still he was still like a household name. That's why I, th- I believe that he's a little bit better than the DeRozan. Yeah, closer closer to Rasheed Wallace and Jermaine O'Neal than he was to Kevin Garnett and Tim Duncan. Hundred percent, right? Yeah, I agree yeah. with that. Uh, let me give you some notes from that season, the 2001-2002. Jog some of your memory here. Uh, in that draft, Kwame Brown, yes, Kwame yeah, Brown became the first high school player to be drafted first overall in the two thousand and one draft. Uh, the Grizzlies relocated to Memphis, played their uh, first three seasons at the old Pyramid. Kobe Bryant wins uh, MVP in the All-Star game in Philadelphia. He gets booed out of the building, uh, but he shut everybody up by holding the MVP trophy over his head. Um, MJ's back. This is the return of MJ this season. He returns uh, to play for the Wizards. You remember? You know, I, I think people sleep on how good MJ was. Yeah, Wizards MJ I don't think wasn't Wiz- bad. I think Wizards MJ is better than most people give Wizards MJ credit for. Yeah, Wizards MJ wasn't bad. I, I, I'll always remember... Uh, Wizards MJ going up and and pinning a shot off the backboard with both his yeah. hands. Yeah, that, I mean, what a highlight! And this, That's an amazing YouTube clip. Oh man, Wizards MJ was was wasn't that bad. Uh, the for the first time since 1985-86, no team won fewer than 20 games. The worst record in the league was uh, 21 and 61. That was the Bulls and the Warriors that season. Why you got to bring my Bulls into this conversation, <laughs> man? We were having a great, we were having a good time, kicking, <laughs> chilling, relaxing, talking about Chris Webber choking, and you're gonna have to go pull off a little low blow stunt like that. <laughs> I will say, I don't, I don't like thinking back about the 2001-02 season because all I can remember is the Bulls trading away Elton Brand so that they could have themselves a new twin towers of yes. Tyson Chandler and Eddie Curry. And man, that that just that, that did not work out. Yep. I know Chandler ended up becoming you know an all star and a champion elsewhere after leaving Chicago. And I think I think history is a little unkind on Eddie Curry. I think I think he was a little bit more of a load than people kind of give him credit for. But man, I, I remember uh, Curry and Chandler on the cover of, on on covers of magazines together, talking about how they were going to be the next Tim Duncan and David Robinson and. Uh, hey, Carlin, they were not the next Tim Duncan and David Robinson. <laughs> well, at that time, that's that's how you built your team. You, you got two big guys and and you pounded inside. So oh, my God. Can't blame them. Can't blame them. Uh, you ready for some off-seasons for the uh, yearly awards? You know what shocked me? Sacramento didn't have any, have any. Like, they had a great year. They did not win a single individual award. Well, it's because, I mean, we, we talked about Chris Webber being hurt right so you're not like like page is not gonna win the mvp award right no he didn't uh tim duncan actually did his first of Correct. uh two in a row rookie there was pal gasol uh david uh, sorry not david robinson ben wallace was defensive player of the year and also led the league in rebounding uh at 13 a game i was shocked that bobby jackson did not win six man of the year that year uh do you know who did you might uh, I, I'm cheating and I looked at it, but you did say his name already in the podcast. I did. So technically, a Sacramento King did win he an did. award. Uh, Corliss Williamson won the award, and he was actually on the bench that led the league in scoring at 33.4 per game, just edging out the Utah Jazz at 32.4 per game. Uh, do you know where Sacramento finished that year? In points per game off the bench. This uh, caveat here, uh, this actually includes... <laughs> Includes playoffs as well, okay. so it, it's it's kind of 
kind of skewed a little bit because I'm assuming the Kings going deep in the playoffs didn't go too deep into their bench, so sure. they're a little bit, you know, it, it's a little bit off. But I, I mean, if you're if you're gonna sit up here and ask me where the Sacramento Kings ranked in bench scoring in 2002, <laughs> that's it. That's a that's a deeper cut than going Brent Price. I don't know. Oh, just, yeah. just keep going. You're on a roll. Take Bo- it from here. Bobby Jackson, Hugh Turklu. They had they had two guys in double figures off the bench. They they finished 18th in bench scoring. I got. 18th. I do have. I do have some awards voting for the Sacramento Ooh, Kings. All right. Year. Let me hear that. All right. So 16 players received an MVP vote. Uh, the Kings had three of them. Chris Webber finished seventh in MVP voting. Mike Bibby and Peja both got one single fifth place uh, MVP vote. We're scrolling down here, scrolling down here. Nothing for rookie of the year. Nothing for defensive player of the year. Bobby Jackson finishes as a runner-up behind Corliss Williamson for sixth man of the year. Uh, finishes second, 31st place votes. And we have a 12th place finish for Hito Turkaloo for most improved player. So there you wow. go. There's your award snapshot. Uh, for the Sacramento Kings in 2002. I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe we can we can look it up. I'm pretty sure Peja finished as a runner-up for uh, most improved the year before in that category. And while they're doing that, I'll mention uh, that uh, Chris Webber finished uh, on the second NBA or NBA All Team, second All Team NBA. What what am I saying? All NBA second team. All NBA second team. Very smooth. Very for, smooth delivery. For Chris Webber. No one else uh, was mentioned other than Doug Christie, who finished uh, second team, all defensive team. That's it. That's all for the Kings. Sacramento Kings uh, fall to the Lakers. Game seven of the finals. You know what else broke my heart when I was going through and reading yeah. uh, re- reading things here? Uh, the 2001-2002 season is the last for NBC as a television broadcaster. Oh man, pour one out. Yeah. The best the best sports music in the history of sports or music. Yeah. That's uh that 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 hurt a little bit when I read that one. So, uh there you have it. The uh 2002 Sacramento Kings. We didn't get a number on the uh on the All-NBA voting, did we? Or the uh Page of finishing second. I'm getting I'm getting the wheel of death from my internet. My 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 computer <laughs> knows that it's Friday at five o'clock and it's ready to get out of here. It's not uh, even giving me the option of looking up more stuff. Yeah, people could look it up on their own. How about that? Yeah. There we go. Hey, but but one one for the road. Since we don't have that voting for you, how about Peja? A couple years later, finishing fourth in MVP voting. The perhaps the sneakiest top five MVP uh, finish that nobody ever remembers. That is sneaky. sneaky. And by the way, I was able to track it down. 2001 MVP, or sorry, 2001 most improved voting. Peja does indeed finish second. Who finished first? You have a guess? Oh, man. In 2001? 2001. He just kind of jumps on the scene at this time, has his own team. He becomes the man. Stackhouse? No, not Jerry Stackhouse. It's Tracy McGrady. Ooh, that's that's an easy one. I'm embarrassed for myself. Yeah, Tracy McGrady. That's okay. I said, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jamal Mashburn was on the Denver Nuggets. He never played a minute for them in his life. (laughs) Last pod. That's neither here nor there. Yeah, we're living with that. Should have said Fat Lever. Uh, There you have it. 2002 Sacramento Kings. 
Go back and watch some of their stuff on YouTube and appreciate how they kind of set the NBA wheels in motion for what we see today. At that time, the fastest pace in the NBA. They were scoring a bunch. Uh, right now, they'd probably be snail's pace in the NBA. For Mike Adams, I am Carlin Gay. Keep it locked all season long right here on NBA Sound System. Even though there's not games happening, we will continue to pod. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week.